we are finishing a study in Genesis. It has been such a rich study. What a, the Bible is so good. And the revelation from God and His Word is so glorious. And it has been a rich feast for us. And it's kind of like one of those meals that you don't want to end, but we can look back on with fondness and it sets the table for the rest of our journeying through the Scriptures. And so I want to recap a little bit of the storyline of some of the themes that we've picked up from Genesis in conclusion of our series before we dive into the very last paragraph of the very last chapter in Genesis chapter 50. So let me pray for us before we dive in. Father, you are so glorious. Lord Jesus, you are so much worthier of all of our surrender than we could possibly even seek to give to you. Lord, who in here doesn't know what it's like to sing lyrics and not mean them in a moment? So I pray that this morning you would come and make those words true from our hearts, God. Lord, we have such a great salvation in Jesus. God, would you come and reveal yourself to us in deeper measure and may the cry of your people be to press on to know you and to love you with all of our hearts, to lay hold of all that you have given us in Christ. Come speak to us, replace our cool and calloused hearts with faith and expectation in a God who raises the dead and gives life to what does not exist. You can do it this morning. Would you speak in Jesus' name? Amen. Well, I want to recap a little bit of where we're coming from in Genesis, especially if you're new to the series. But isn't it amazing where we've come to date and all that we've seen of God and his character and his ways? Genesis starts in this very good beginning. Mankind created to live in unbridled fellowship with God. And God, after everything that he made, declared that it was good. And then he made man and his wife. And they had this unbroken fellowship with God. And God calls it very good. When God calls something good, he means it's not diluted by what is evil or what is wrong. It is perfect. And so we begin in the perfect, very good beginning in relationship with God. But it is corrupted very early on by sin. Man choosing to be God rather than to be ruled by God. And we lost this unbridled fellowship with God. The word of God is clear. God said in the day that man disobeyed him, he would surely die. The wages of sin is death and it always has been. And so sin entered into the world and death came through sin. And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And it has been the spiritual DNA and what you see everywhere in the world is brokenness and sin and suffering and death, and it is all a fruit and a byproduct of our independence and rebellion against God. Immediately after the fall of man, in cursing man and the devil himself, God begins immediate mercy, giving promise of the Christ to come, of the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And so, All throughout the story, we've been looking forward, even just in Genesis, looking forward to this promised offspring, the one who would come and redeem his people and deliver them from the lot that we had chosen for ourselves. 
God told the enemy, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, God then covers Adam and Eve with uh, a sacrifice that he sacrificed for them in their place, a foreshadowing of the Christ who is to come, this offspring who would deliver them. His image in them was marred. They no longer reflect the glory of God like he had made them to. And their fellowship with God was gone. The, this unbridled, unbroken fellowship where they lived life sin-free with joy in the presence of God, that was gone. But what they had, because God is merciful and gracious, is a promise of a coming rescuer who would deliver his people. And so this repeated mandate that we saw at the beginning of Genesis, both after the fall, before the fall, after the flood, was to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth with image bearers. Fill the earth with the image of God. And in Genesis chapter 11, we saw uh, mankind, instead of seeking to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with God's image, they all aggregated and consolidated their efforts together to seek to be God, to seek to reach the heavens. And so God scattered them. And then in Genesis chapter 12, God sets his love on a man and his family, on a pagan idolater. Deuteronomy chapter 7, God tells Israel, it wasn't because you were the greatest of all peoples that I set my love on you. It was because I loved you. So we, we say often, God, God loves you because he loves you. It's not because of any works that you've done in righteousness. It's not because he saw you and thought, you know who would be a great addition to the kingdom of God? That wasn't it. He loved you. He called you when you were dead in sin and your trespasses, alienated from the life of God, just like he set his love on Abraham. And when he called him out, he called him into a covenant relationship with himself. And he promises him these great promises of a land, of an offspring, and a blessing, that God had blessed him to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. It went like this. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So the call of God involved a leaving of the land that he was from, and he was going to bring him up into a new land. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Ultimately, we know that he's referring to Christ, that through the coming offspring of the Lord Jesus Christ, all the families of the earth would be blessed through the offspring of Abraham. And Abraham believed God, and God credited Abraham's faith to him as righteousness. And Abraham would become a model of faith for all who would place their trust in Christ alone for salvation. That we turn from our sin and we place our trust in Christ, and God imputes the righteousness of Christ to us on the basis of faith. And so in Genesis 15, God promised Abraham that he brought him out of the land of Ur so that he would bring him into the land of promise. And Abraham asked God this question, how shall I know that I will possess it? And do you know what God's answer was? He, he made a promise. He cut a covenant with him. His answer was, I'm bringing you into relationship with myself. How will I know that I'm going to inherit this land? How will I know that you will keep your promise? God didn't promise from a distance. He brought him near and made him one with himself and brought him into relationship with him and in effect said, I promise. 
And then right after that, foreshadowing our text today, the Lord says to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So God right there is promising them, you will come out and take possession of it. There will be a a season, a time, 400 years where your offspring will be servants in a land that is not theirs, but I will bring them out of that land and I will bring them into this land that I am promising you. So all throughout Genesis, we see God recounting his, or we have recounted God's steadfast love and his faithfulness. This has not been a story of heroes, heroes where we see the faith and the obedience and the righteousness of great men and women This has been the story of a faithful God who the sinfulness of his wayward people cannot thwart his goodness or his redemptive purposes toward them. He is loving and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he extends his covenant relationship to Abraham's sons and to their families, appearing to each one and extending his covenant and his promises to them. And so then last week we saw in Genesis 50, verse 20, as sort of a theme verse, as an umbrella over all of Genesis to this point, and looking forward, Joseph tells his brothers in forgiveness of them, uh, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So this is a, a theme over all of Genesis. What the enemy had meant for evil, God had meant for good. That's true from the garden to now and now into the present, that, that nothing could thwart God's redemptive purposes and all that he had predestined to happen according to his good plan, according to his glory. So in the midst of all the hatred of the brothers that we've seen in Genesis, all the sinfulness, all the disobedience, none of it could thwart the redemptive purposes of a covenant-keeping God who makes promises to his people and then fulfills the own, his own obligations of the covenant in his love for them, that his steadfast love could not be removed from his people. And so we've seen all of that in Genesis, and now we come to this final paragraph, and we see Joseph's faith in God in the face of death. Look at Genesis chapter 50, verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt... He and his father's house, Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. So this is recounting, this is a tribute to Joseph's righteousness before God. And he gets to see his children and his children's children. This has been a God-fearing man and God blessed him. Verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Not exactly the ending that you were thinking of for Genesis, right? The last phrase is 
they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. The end. Now he has this promise. We're going to get to that. He has this promise. He says it two different times. But the word for visit, he uses two times in each sentence. So literally, he says, God will surely visit you with a visitation. And he says it twice. So all throughout this paragraph, it's this visit, visit, visit. And it, it's this uh, condescending mercy and favor of God that he's coming to you. And Joseph here is clinging to and passing on God's promise to Abraham. This, this surety this faith from Joseph was resting in a promise from God that he knew that they would need. And so he is passing it on to them, to the rest of his family. And it is a pregnant reminder, rich with implications for them. So why is he reminding them of this? Why would it be so important for them to remember and to know that God will surely visit you and bring you up from this land? First, I think he's saying, don't settle in Egypt. We're not Egyptian. Already in Genesis, Egypt has represented the world. It was Babel 2.0 in a sense. It has represented all that man can do in his pride and in his self-reliance, right? In Israel, they depended on the rain and the blessings sent from heaven. And in Egypt, they had irrigation systems and all that they could do to engineer their own sustenance. And so over and over again, we see that the patriarchs traveling to Egypt actually represented unbelief and self-reliance, a lack of faith in God by men who chose to deliver themselves by their own wisdom. And so now in his providence, God had brought them there. And we know that going down to Egypt had been so wrong because when Joseph calls Jacob to himself, God shows up and says, Jacob, it's okay. I know historically it's been wrong for, you to, for people to go to Egypt. They went down to Egypt without consulting me, but I am in this and I will go with you. I have a plan. It's okay. Go to Egypt. But here, Joseph, who was practically Egyptian by his setting, he had spent most of his life in Egypt in terms of what was comfortable to him, what the customs were. This would have been so natural and normal for him to put down roots and rest in Egypt and just to settle it as, yes, God promised us this land, but that was a long time ago. And look at all that we have here. Look how established I am. I'm the ruler over all of Egypt. His sons, a couple of his sons, according to history, were viziers in Egypt. I mean, this, was, this family was rooted and established with power. And Egypt represented, we know from Hebrews talking about Moses, Moses chose to endure mistreatment with the people of God rather than to enjoy, quote, the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded the reproach of Christ a greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. So Egypt, in all of its affluence, represented this self-reliance of man. All the things that the world has to offer us, all the affluence, all the wealth, all the fleeting pleasures of sin, and Joseph was looking his family in the eyes and saying, God is going to bring you up from here. Don't settle here. And when he does, bring me with you. I am so confident of this in the face of death. Bring my bones up with you. We are not staying here. God will be true to his promise. You are not Egyptian. Keep your eyes on home and on his promise. He will lead us up from here. Don't settle in Egypt. 
The second, I think he knows that they're going to need this promise in the midst of the suffering that they are about to endure. God will bring you up, but they know from what God had revealed in Genesis 15 that it was going to be 400 years from that point and that they were going to be servants in this land. Now, it didn't appear that way yet, but we know from Exodus that there arose a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph and he enslaved the people of Israel. But this was not wishful thinking of Joseph. This is not the, the secret kind of thinking or the kind of stuff that you see on Facebook where people are sending happy thoughts and positive thoughts that you think you're actually going to actualize something if you just believe it hard enough. If you just had believed hard enough, that person would have received healing. Or if you had just had this more positive attitude, this thing wouldn't have happened. That is the religion of the world. This kind of secret kind of thinking is sending it out and then it comes back to you. That's not what Joseph is doing. Real faith, biblical faith, rests on real promises. And here Joseph is recalling to mind the promise that God had made first to Abraham and then to Isaac and to Jacob. It is incumbent on every generation to have the promises of God, to believe the promises of God, and then to pass on those promises to the next generation. And so Joseph is giving his family these promises and reminding them of them so that they would remain faithful and cling to God when it looked like he wasn't keeping his promises, that they would remind their children and their children's children in the midst of coming hardship that for 400 years, generation after generation, they would endure slavery and suffering, and it would seem like God was being slow about his promise even though he had told them the exact number of years that they were going to be here in the first place. And you could just imagine as the generations would go one generation, the next generation, how it would be so easy for that promise to start to sound faint and far off and irrelevant to their daily life. But God would not be slow about his promise, and at the appointed time, he would surely visit them. That's what Joseph's saying four times over. He will visit you. He will visit you with the visitation. Don't forget, in the midst of the hardship, in the midst of the suffering and the pain, do not lose sight of the promise of God. He will surely visit you. And when the suffering got hard, they would need to lean all their weight on this promise, on his goodness. Third, this command from Joseph is rich with this resurrection kind of hope. Joseph says, carry my bones. It's one of these great mysteries, you know, what's the significance of Joseph's bones? But I think we've seen this over and over again with the patriarchs, with Abraham's first purchase in the land of promise being a grave, that these patriarchs believed that with their own eyes they would see God. And this commitment to being buried in the land of promise was both this resurrection hope that God would raise them from the dead because of their faith in the coming offspring, and he would be true to his promise that there was a promised land, not just the land of Israel, but an ultimate promised land. And they were looking to the reward. That's what Hebrews 11 recounts over and over again. And in Hebrews 11, verse 22, the writer of Hebrews says, By faith Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus by the, of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. So this mandate that seems weird to us was something that Joseph was doing by faith in God and in his promises. 
You can just imagine this. I mean, Joseph is on his deathbed. There is nothing more concrete to us in life than death. Nothing more sure that any of us will experience than the fact that you were born and you will die. And Joseph is sitting there on the face of death, and death strips away everything except for God and his promises. All the things that you could cling to in life, all the things about Egypt that they would be prone to be tempted by or to cling to would all be stripped away from him. And he's looking death in the face. When's the last time you did that? Where you know you're going to die. And everything about your life is going to be stripped from you. All the things that you focus on, all the things that distract you, all the things that are prone to lead you away are going to be stripped from you. And when Joseph's sitting there on the brink of death, what he has is this hope of a God who resurrects the dead and a promise that God in his faithfulness to him were more concrete than his certain death. And as he's on his deathbed, he's looking his family in the eyes and saying, carry my bones up from here. You know why? Because I will rise and God will keep his promises. It's such a powerful pregnant reminder to them in the midst of all that they're about to go through they're caring about the bones of Joseph so in Exodus chapter 13 when it talks about Moses leading the people out of the land of Egypt it makes mention that Moses took the bones of Joseph with him and then in Joshua chapter 24 after they've conquered the land and they've entered into it it says as for the bones of Joseph when the people of Israel brought which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt they buried them at Shechem So literally from the moment he makes this command until after they make full entrance into the promised land and God kept his promises and brought them into the land and they conquered, then they bury the bones of Joseph. And until then, they are a reminder of a God who keeps his promises and of fathers who had faith in a God that was stronger than death. Now, Genesis has this to be continued language. This is not a happy ending. You think about the contrast and the devastation that sin causes. We began in the very good beginning, in perfect communion with God in the garden. And we end Genesis in a coffin in Egypt. Sin is devastating. And God was true to his promise. In the day that you eat of it, you will die. And death would spread to all men. But... Nothing could thwart the redemptive purposes of God. And so, yes, even though we end in a coffin in Egypt, there's this to-be-continued hope because Joseph is saying, God is going to visit you. End in a coffin. But which is the final word? The grave or this resurrection-style hope that's saying God will be true to his promise. God will visit you. And the very next book picks up where we left off. God would visit his people. And so, yes, his promise was kept. After 400 years of slavery and exile of sorts, the last word being a promise and a coffin, there's silence from God for almost 400 years or for 400 years. And then in Deuteronomy, we can use this uh, three verses from Deuteronomy 26 as a sort of summary of what happened. The Egyptians treated the Israelites harshly and humiliated them and laid on them hard labor. Then they cried out to the Lord. This is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7. They cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard their voice and saw their affliction and their toil and their oppression. 
And the Lord brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror and with signs and wonders. So yes, this is what happens. God reveals himself to Moses, and he calls him to be a deliverer of his people. And the people rejoice. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 31, it says, The people believed when Moses showed them these signs. Surely God has revealed himself to us, and he is going to deliver us. And he shows them signs, and it says, The people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had what? Visited his people. Then they bowed down their heads, and they worshiped. That was the last word that they had been left with. God will surely visit you. And then in Exodus chapter 4, after Moses says, I've seen God and he's promised us that he's bringing us out from here. They bow their heads and they worship. Because despite 400 years of silence, God had kept his promise. It says that God brought judgment on Egypt for all their cruelty and all their hardship that they brought on the people of Israel, and you are probably familiar with the, pl- with the plagues that God brought against Egypt. Over and over again, Pharaoh hardened his heart, would not let the people go, and then the last plague, God would strike down all the firstborn of Egypt, all the firstborn in Egypt. No Israelite got a pass just by the nature of being an Israelite. He gave them a very specific mandate to take the blood of a spotless, unblemished lamb and to put it over the doorpost of their house. And then everybody who was inside that house with the blood of the lamb over the doorposts, when God saw the blood, he would pass over that house in judgment. He would spare that house, not because of the righteousness of the people in the house, but because of of the blood of a spotless lamb, because of a blood that would point ahead to the blood of the ultimate spotless Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. All of this, of course, foreshadowed this promise, deliverance of God visiting us in the person of the Messiah, the one who would redeem and deliver his people. So Moses told them in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Over and over again from this time, we get more promises and more prophetic words, just like Joseph gave to his brothers and his families, God will surely visit you. All throughout Israel's storied history, they get these promises, God will visit you. That promised offspring is still coming. It wasn't Moses. And then David comes, and it wasn't David. But we get this narrowing view, God is coming. God will redeem his people. God will deliver his people. In Jeremiah verse 23, as an example, Jeremiah says, In verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. This is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So still you have this promise of God of a coming rescuer. He is the righteous one. It won't be dependent on the righteousness of his people. He will come and deliver them and bring them into the land that he had promised them. Again, in Zechariah 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Prophet after prophet, all throughout the Old Testament revelation, we have this repeated promise, God will surely visit you. God will surely visit you. Just like Joseph had said 
and just like all the prophets had promised. And then, wouldn't you know, because God loves foreshadow and repeating himself, after the final promise of God surely visiting his people, what do you have? 400 years of silence. Between the Testaments, 400 years without a word from God. Literally, just like we had this word from Joseph, God will surely visit you, and then it ends in what feels like a coffin in Egypt, a silence as quiet as a coffin. And then into that silence, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he could redeem us out from under the law and redeem us from our slavery to sin and bring us out of our exile that was away from his presence. And he could bring us into reconciliation and fellowship with God, the presence of God for the first time, unbridled and unbroken like we had in Eden. That's where we're headed. That's what Jesus came to give to us. And so is it any surprise when the forerunner of Christ, when he's announcing him to the world, what does he say in John chapter 1? John the Baptist is crying out to people. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the ultimate Passover lamb, the one that when God sees the blood over the doorpost of your heart applied by faith, he would pass over you in judgment. He has surely visited his people. This is the language that Luke chooses to use over and over again. When Zechariah, when the silence is broken and the angel appears to Zechariah and he's able to speak for the first time, in Zechariah chapter 1, he's filled with the Spirit and he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. So this is, these are the promises that Zechariah is looking back to when he realizes that the Christ is here. He's kept his promise, the promise that he made to Abraham to send the coming offspring, the one who was surely going to visit his people. He has visited us. In Luke chapter 7, after Jesus raises a young man from the dead, fear seizes the crowd and they glorify God saying, a great prophet has risen among us. God has visited his people. In Luke 19, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because they did not realize the day of their visitation, that God had visited his people and they missed it. God has surely visited us in Christ. He's called us out of our idolatry like he did for Abraham. He didn't call us out because of we were so great and mighty. We were the weakest, the most foolish, the most wicked from among all peoples, and he called us out. Because he loved us, because he chose us in his love and in his kindness. He set his affection on you and raised you to life from your coffin in Egypt. And now on this side of the cross, now that we look back, Joseph was looking ahead and saying, God will visit his people, which was true in the Exodus, and it was ultimately true in Christ. He has visited us. So now how are we to take these same promises on this side of the cross? How does Joseph's exhortation apply to us now looking back on the cross? And I think it's the same. First, don't settle for Egypt. Don't settle in Egypt. He said, God will visit you and bring you up out of this land. 
hear this, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He brought us out of our sin and our death so that he could bring us into the land of his rest and his blessing. He did not just bring you out so that you could enjoy freedom from slavery or freedom from sin. He brought you out to bring you in to his fellowship and to his rest. This is what he says to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 6, verse 23. They're recounting God's faithfulness in the Exodus. The Exodus was a type of the cross, of the great deliverance by the blood of a lamb. So these same descriptions of what happened in the Exodus apply to us now. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 23, Moses recounts, he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. This is why he brought us out, so that he would bring us in, to bring us into the land that he promised. Again, Deuteronomy 4, verse 37, it says, Because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence, he did it to bring you in and to give you the land for an inheritance. So I want you to hear this. It says it's because he loves you that he brought you out. But he didn't bring you out to leave you out in no man's land. And he didn't bring you out by the blood of the lamb so that you would long for that country that he brought you out from. He brought you out to bring you in. And this is the glorious truth of what Christ has done for us. He has saved you. If you have placed your trust in Jesus, he has saved you in the sense that he has justified you by a gift of his grace through faith. Apart from works of the law, apart from anything that you could do to earn it, he gave it to you as a gift, which you received with open hands of faith. And he imputed to you the righteousness of Christ. He has visited you, beloved of God. He has redeemed you. It's, it's real. It's real. He really has done it. If you're in Christ, he really has removed your sin from you and removed your guilt from you. This is amazing. And if you're in Christ, he says, all who have taken refuge in the ark of Christ will enter into the new creation. If you're in the ark, when the waters of his wrath fire through the world, if you're in Christ, he will spare you and you will make it safely to the land of his rest where we will have restored unbroken fellowship with God. And we will live in the presence of God and the Lamb alone will be our light and there will be no more tears or death or crying or sadness anymore. We'll just have God. That is coming. That is our hope. That is our longing. And it is ours in Jesus. And in the in-between, he has called us to take hold of, by faith, what Jesus has purchased for us. There is a striving and a, a pressing on to know the Lord and to take hold of the land and to take ground in between him declaring you righteous in Christ and justifying you by faith and saying, I will bring you safely into the promised land and in between, no true believer coasts. We strain forward to take hold of that for which we have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. This is 
what he calls us to. And this is both a warning and an exhortation, an encouragement and a warning. Because Stephen, when he's recounting the same story to the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7, he said, our fathers, the generation that was brought out of Egypt, refused to obey Moses, who was a type of the deliverer to come. Remember, God will raise up a deliverer like me from among you. Christ is that deliverer. And so Stephen likens their unbelief and disobedience to the risen Lord Jesus, to the Father's disobedience and unbelief when Moses was leading them out. It says they refused to obey Moses, but they thrust him aside. Listen to this. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. Now, they didn't return to Egypt. If you were just looking at the congregation of Israel, you would have no idea which ones of them had turned to Egypt in their hearts and which one of them were remaining faithful to God until they broke out the golden calf and started worshiping it. But our idols are more discreet today. We can get away with returning to Egypt in our hearts without actually setting up golden calves on our front lawn to alert all of our friends that there's an emergency. And because that generation turned away from God in their hearts, God turned away from them. And he did not allow anyone from that unbelieving generation to enter into his rest, except for Joshua and Caleb, who were faithful. Now listen to what Hebrews said. I've gone back and forth whether or not to read all of this to you, and I'm just going to. So here we go. Hebrews chapter 2, starting verse 1 through 3. I want you to lean in. I want you to listen. Therefore, we must pay closer, much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, meaning those who received the law and disobeyed the law, they got what they deserved. They turned away from God, and God turned away from them, and it was his just retribution. Verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? I want you to hear this. I'm, I'm, I am preaching as a pastor to the church that I love. It is possible to have the gospel and to neglect the salvation that Jesus gave you. What does that look like? Well, you can allow the Holy Spirit to communicate that to your heart. But here's what I know. The writer of Hebrews says, pay, pay attention. Because if they received just retribution for turning away from a law that was given to them that could not give life, and we have this great salvation, how will we escape? If we neglect it. Jesus said in Luke 9, verse 62, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You know what that means? Their hands are still on the plow, but in their hearts, they long for Egypt. They may still be plowing right along next to you. And Jesus says, you're not worthy of me. If you look back, 
You long for your former way of life. You long for the world. You long for the things in the world. You don't love Jesus. You don't love following him. Your heart's strayed after other things. <sighs> Pay attention. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? He continues in chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers. He's talking to the church. He's talking to us. Take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Wow. So he's saying this is a group project. You need other believers to come alongside you and exhort you and surround you and say, let us press on to know the Lord, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. And you get out on an island and you be out by yourself and you convince yourself that your version of Jesus is authentic and real and that you know him. We need the church. The church needs you to exhort each other, to say, let's go, let's press on to know the real Jesus. Let's get Egypt out of our hearts. Praise his name, he has justified us by faith. Praise his name, we will reach safely home. And in between, he has called us to lean forward and to take hold of the eternal life to which we've been called. He said, we've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. There are many today who don't. There is an apostasy happening in the church. You can see it all around. They give it nice names like deconstruction. It is a going out from us because they were never of us. But it is on the church to know each other, to be vulnerable with each other, to open yourself up to the rest of the body and say, let's go, let's press on to know the Lord, let's hold fast our original confidence to the end. In verse 19, he says, this generation, they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as it did to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who believed enter that rest. Don't miss that. You don't enter the rest by your striving. Remember, he set his love on you. He brought you into his rest. He gives you his rest by faith. But the faith that he gives you comes with a motor. And it chases after Jesus. The faith that he gives you does not languish in unbelief and settle and coast. If you shrink back from Jesus, do you know how it starts? Think about it. Forward progress and you start to shrink back, you know what it starts to look like before you start shrinking back? It looks like no motion. It looks like you're just content and you've stopped growing. You've stopped following Jesus. You've stopped loving him. You've stopped striving after him and you've looked back to Egypt. It starts in your heart. And we need the body to exhort one another as long as it is still called today to hold fast our original confidence to the end and keep pressing on to know him to ensure that our faith in Jesus is real. Because if it is not, if we have a Jesus who we love because he saves us, I have a Jesus who I love because he loves me as much as I do, that Jesus will not save you. Because at the end of the day, you love yourself. You love Egypt. 
and you will shrink back. When persecution sets in, when time gets hard, instead of linking arms with the body and pressing on and being sure and holding fast to your confidence to the end, you will shrink back. And what it could look like right now is neutral. And I am saying, beloved, kick that thing into drive before you start going in reverse. You will not be able to stay neutral on Jesus. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever is under God's rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience where they fell because they did not believe the promise of God. It wasn't because they didn't strive hard enough. It wasn't because they weren't righteous enough. They didn't have faith. That's why when he, the solution to it is, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit, of joints and marrows, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He's saying, look, you can't hide. You may have Egypt in your heart. You may not love Christ. You may be languishing. You may be in neutral. But the God who loves you, you cannot hide from. His word exposes you. So get into his word so that you can invite the exposing light of God. So that you can confess your sin and so that the word can be united by real faith. And so that we can press on to know the Lord. That's why he's saying strive to enter his rest, but the striving comes from faith. He doesn't say strive, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and maintain your own righteousness. He says strive to enter the rest. The word of God can expose you. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And then he goes right on to pointing you to your high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, since we have him, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our confidence, our hope, is not our righteousness. It's that Jesus is righteous for us, and he has opened up a way. And he has given us a spirit, and he says, come near to me. Draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. Come and live in the presence that he died to give to you. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? How can we love sin more than we love the Savior who died and was raised to redeem us from it so that we could walk in a newness of life? And so this promise from Joseph saying he will visit you, we can look back and far be it from us for Joseph to have a greater faith and a coming redemption than we have in one that already happened. And we can say he has surely redeemed us. We will not settle for Egypt. We will not love the world nor the things in the world because we know that if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We will press on to know the Lord. We will hold fast our confidence to the end, not because of our righteousness, but because Christ, our righteousness, has been raised and he is seated at the right hand of the Father and he's opened wide a door for us to come and live in the presence of God. And so that's where I'm going to live. Quickly, don't leave that place. I'm going to give a little side word for people that are struggling and suffering. Don't leave there. <clears throat> but maybe you feel like you're in a coffin in Egypt. 
You wonder where God has gone. The hope of his promise feels faint and far off. I want to read you these verses in sequence. I'm not spending a lot of time here. I'm just praying that the Lord would minister to your heart through this. The God who raises the dead has delivered us from a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. He has visited us, visited us, and he will visit us. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you know him. Though you haven't seen him, you believe on him and rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You're going to see his face soon. So set your hope there. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is about to be revealed to us. Yes, the creation longs and groans for our adoption as son, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes and what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, then we wait for it with patience. He will visit us. We have this hope fixed on him. And those who have our hopes fixed on him and on our redemption as children of God purify ourselves just as he is pure. This is our hope, our confidence. So lean the weight of coming glory against your present suffering. Your suffering at this present time, however heart-wrenching, however much it feels suffocating and hopeless, there is hope here that Jesus purchased for you. Lean it against the weight of your suffering and set your hope fully on the revelation to be brought to you when Jesus comes. And then last, so these are following the same reasons why Joseph gave this exhortation. We must, and this is connected to not settling in Egypt, we must look to the reward. This is what Elijah read for us. Joseph said, God will bring you up to bring you into the land and all the fathers and all that generation before the wilderness generation were looking ahead to the promise. They were looking to the reward. And Elijah read for us from Hebrews, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob included, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which clings so closely. Let us lay aside all of Egypt that is tempting us, the Egypt in our hearts, the things that lead you to independence from God, to unbelief, the things that you are tempted to love more than God, the greed, the materialism, the, the false hope and political ideologies, the, the sexual temptation. Lay it aside and look to Jesus. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I can't wait to study Hebrews with you. It says, look, he did, it's, not, it's not angels that Jesus helps. He helps you. He loves you. He is at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. He is mediating for you by his blood right now, and right now he is saving you to the uttermost. He loves you. We love because he first loved us. This is not a message saying, 
You need to love him. Get your motor on. He's somewhere out there, and maybe you can reach him. This is, he reached down and loved you and rescued you, and how could we neglect such a great Savior, such a great salvation? Let's lay aside all these things that easily entangle us. The things that keep you from being at the gathering, lay them aside. The things that keep you from being at D group, put them aside. All the things that would cause you to overwork and stress out because you're not trusting God and so you're working too much and so you're missing time with the family of God and you're not helping them to press on, lay them aside. We've got Egypt in our hearts. We need to lay them aside so that we can press on and run with endurance this race that is set before us. We don't regard ourselves as having attained it yet, but forgetting what lies behind. We press on toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Heaven is coming. It is where we are from now. And it's from heaven that we are eagerly waiting our salvation. This is all Philippians 3. Go read it. I have it written down here. Don't have time to read it. Go read it. Let's be Philippians 3 kind of Christians, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. We want to take hold of that for which we have been taken hold of by Jesus. We don't want a faith that coasts lest we prove that we're enemies of the cross of Christ and have no real faith. So Jesse and Elijah, you guys can come back up. I'm going to leave you with two final references and a call to repent. Paul exhorts Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, he says, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Many of you, maybe all of you, have made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Praise the Lord. Now take hold of the eternal life to which you've been called. You have to take hold of it by faith. That's why he says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of it. Jesus bought it for you. You're not buying it. You're not buying it with your righteousness. He bought it for you to give to you, to be received by faith. So receive it. Wherever you find yourself this morning, I want you to believe this. You are the beloved of God. He has visited you in Christ and he will visit you Again, so we set our hope fully on him and we lay hold of it. We lay hold of what he died to give you by faith. If you could see all that is yours in Jesus, you would wonder why you live content with so much less. He has given you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Peter says that he's given you everything you need for life and for godliness. You have all the riches of heaven at your disposal because of Jesus. Use it. Don't have this limitless bank account in heaven and a debit card and not use it. It's crazy. And then we live poor and we live needy and we live anxious and we've got this debit card sitting there. It's got everything that we need and we don't use it. So use it, beloved. Press on. You can close your eyes. I'm going to pray. I'm going to read this over you as we pray. Some of this message may have felt a bit like a tearing. So listen to this from Hosea chapter 6. 
Come, Rivertown, come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Father, we praise you for the gift of your revelation. That, Jesus, you are the word. You are the one that goes forth from the Father to reveal to us what you are like. Lord, I have walked with you for over 30 years, and everything that I have seen of you has caused me to love you more. There is not one thing that you could show us about yourself that would cause us to turn away. You are good and just and kind and perfect in all of your ways, and we have sinned. God, forgive us for trading out the fountain of living waters for broken cisterns that cannot satisfy. They cannot hold the weight of our joy. They weren't meant to. You brought us out from lesser joys, not just from sin, but from seeking satisfaction and joy and trusting in things that are not you. You brought us out so that you could bring us in so that we would rest and cease striving from our own labors and our own works and rest in the finished work of Christ. Our debt has been paid in full. Hallelujah. So let us then, Father, strive and labor by the energy that you work into us by your Spirit. Let us press forward with a faith that has a motor, God, give us grace to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering because you who promised are faithful. Father, we love you. Give us grace to love you more, to trust you more, to say and mean with all of our hearts, we surrender all. In Jesus' name, amen.